Section 15 of Good Sense. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Good Sense by Paul Henri Thierry, Baron Dolbach. Translator unknown. Section 15, parts 150 through 160. 150. Tyranny finds religion a weak obstacle to the despair of the people. Priests have ever shown themselves the friends of despotism and the enemies of public liberty. Their trade requires abject and submissive slaves who have never the audacity to reason. In an absolute government, whoever gains an ascendancy over the mind of a weak and stupid prince becomes master of the state. Instead of conducting the people to salvation, priests have always conducted them to servitude. In consideration of the supernatural titles which religion has forged for the worst of princes, the latter have commonly united with priests who, sure of governing by opinion the sovereign himself, have undertaken to bind the hands of the people and to hold them under the yoke. But the tyrant, covered with the shield of religion, in vain flatters himself that he is secure from every stroke of fate. Opinion is a weak rampart against the despair of the people. Besides, the priest is a friend of the tyrant only while he finds his account in tyranny. He preaches sedition and demolishes the idol he has made when he finds it no longer sufficiently conformable to the interest of God, whom he makes to speak at his will, and who never speaks except according to his interests. It will no doubt be said that sovereigns, knowing all the advantages which religion procures them, are truly interested in supporting it with all their strength. If religious opinions are useful to tyrants, it is very evident that they are useful to those who govern by the laws of reason and equity. Is there, then, any advantage in exercising tyranny? Are princes truly interested in being tyrants? Does not tyranny deprive them of true power, of the love of the people, and of all safety? Ought not every reasonable prince to perceive that the despot is a madman and an enemy to himself? Should not every enlightened prince beware of flatterers, whose object is to lull him to sleep upon the brink of the precipice which they form beneath him? 151. Religion favors the wickedness of princes. If sacerdotal flatteries succeed in perverting princes and making them tyrants, tyrants on their part necessarily corrupt both the great and the humble. Under an unjust ruler, void of goodness and virtue, who knows no law but his caprice, a nation must necessarily be depraved. Will this ruler wish to have about his person honest, enlightened, and virtuous men? No. He wants none but flatterers, approvers, imitators, slaves, base and servile souls who conform themselves to his inclinations. His court will propagate the contagion of vice among the lower ranks. All will gradually become corrupted in a state whose chief is corrupt. It was long since said that princes seem to command others to do whatever they do themselves. Religion, far from being a restraint upon sovereigns, 
enables them to indulge without fear or remorse in acts of licentiousness as injurious to themselves as to the nations whom they govern. It is never with impunity that men are deceived. Tell a sovereign that he is a god. He will very soon believe that he owes nothing to anyone. Provided he is feared, he will care very little about being loved. He will observe neither rules nor relations with his subjects, nor duties towards them. Tell this prince that he is accountable for his actions to God alone, and he will soon act as if he were accountable to no one. 152. What is an enlightened sovereign? An enlightened sovereign is he who knows his true interests, who knows that they are connected with the interests of his nation that a prince cannot be great, powerful, beloved, or respected, while he commands only unhappy slaves, that equity, beneficence, and vigilance will give him more real authority over his people than the fabulous titles said to be derived from heaven. He will see that religion is useful only to priests, that it is useless to society and often troubles it, and that it ought to be restrained in order to be prevented from doing injury. Finally, he will perceive that to reign with glory he must have good laws and inculcate virtue, and not found his power upon impostures and fallacies. 153. Of the Prevailing Passions and Crimes of the Priesthood The ministers of religion have taken great care to make of their god a formidable, capricious, and fickle tyrant. Such a god was necessary to their variable interests. A god who should be just and good, without mixture of caprice or perversity. A god who had constantly the qualities of an honest man, or of a kind sovereign, would by no means suit his ministers. It is useful to priests that men should tremble before their god, in order that they may apply to them to obtain relief from their fears. No man is a hero before his valet de chambre. It is not surprising that a god, dressed up by his priests so as to be terrible to others, should rarely impose upon them, or should have but very little influence upon their conduct. Hence, in every country, their conduct is very much the same. Under pretext of the glory of their god, they everywhere prey upon ignorance, degrade the mind, discourage industry, and sow discord. Ambition and avarice have at all times been the ruling passions of the priesthood. The priest everywhere rises superior to sovereigns and laws. We see him everywhere occupied with the interests of his pride, of his cupidity, and of his despotic, revengeful humor. In the room of useful and social virtues, he everywhere substitutes expiations, sacrifices, ceremonies, mysterious practices, in a word, inventions lucrative to himself and ruinous to others. The mind is confounded, and the reason is amazed upon viewing the ridiculous customs and pitiful means which the ministers of the gods have invented in every country to purify souls and render heaven favorable. Here they cut off part of a child's prepuce to secure for him divine benevolence, 
There they pour water upon his head to cleanse him of crimes which he could not as yet have committed. In one place they command him to plunge into a river whose waters have the power of washing away all stains. In another he is forbidden to eat certain food, the use of which will not fail to excite the celestial wrath. In other countries they enjoin upon sinful man to come periodically and confess his faults to a priest, who is often a greater sinner than himself, etc., etc., etc. 154. THE QUACKERY OF PRIESTS What should we say of a set of empirics who, resorting every day to a public place, should extol the goodness of their remedies and vend them as infallible, while they themselves were full of the infirmities which they pretend to cure? Should we have much confidence in the recipes of these quacks, though they stun us with crying, Take our remedies, their effects are infallible, they cure everybody except us. What should we afterwards think, should those quacks spend their lives in complaining that their remedies never produced the desired effect upon the sick who take them? In fine, what idea should we form of the stupidity of the vulgar, who, notwithstanding these confessions, should not cease to pay dearly for remedies, the inefficacy of which everything tends to prove? Priests resemble these alchemists, who boldly tell us they have the secret of making gold, while they have scarcely clothes to cover their nakedness. The ministers of religion incessantly declaim against the corruption of the age, and loudly complain of the little effect of their lessons, while at the same time they assure us that religion is the universal remedy, the true panacea against the wickedness of mankind. These priests are very sick themselves, yet men continue to frequent their shops and to have faith in their divine antidotes, which, by their own confession, never effect a cure. 155. Religion has corrupted morality and produced innumerable evils. Religion, especially with the moderns, has tried to identify itself with morality, the principles of which it has thereby totally obscured. It has rendered men unsociable by duty and forced them to be inhuman to everyone who thought differently from themselves. Theological disputes, equally unintelligible to each of the enraged parties, have shaken empires, caused revolutions, been fatal to sovereigns, and desolated all Europe. These contemptible quarrels have not been extinguished even in rivers of blood. Since the extinction of paganism, the people have made it a religious principle to become outrageous whenever any opinion is advanced which their priests think contrary to sound doctrine. The sectaries of a religion which preaches in appearance nothing but charity, concord, and peace have proved themselves more ferocious than cannibals or savages whenever their divines excited them to destroy their brethren. There is no crime which men have not committed under the idea of pleasing the divinity or appeasing his wrath. The idea of a terrible god whom we paint to ourselves as a despot, must necessarily render his subjects wicked. Fear makes only slaves, and slaves are cowardly, base, cruel, 
and think everything lawful, in order to gain the favor or escape the chastisements of the master whom they fear. Liberty of thinking alone can give men humanity and greatness of soul. The notion of a tyrant god tends only to make them abject, morose, quarrelsome, intolerant slaves. Every religion which supposes a god easily provoked, jealous, revengeful, punctilious about his rights, or the etiquette with which he is treated, a god little enough to be hurt by the opinions which men can form of him, a god unjust enough to require that we have uniform notions of his conduct, a religion which supposes such a god necessarily becomes restless, unsociable, and sanguinary. The worshippers of such a god would never think that they could, without offense, forbear hating and even destroying everyone who is pointed out to them as an adversary of this god. They would think that it would be to betray the cause of their celestial monarch to live in friendly intercourse with rebellious fellow-citizens. If we love what God hates, do we not expose ourselves to his implacable hatred? Infamous persecutors and devout men-haters, will you never discern the folly and injustice of your intolerant disposition? Do you not see that man is no more master of his religious opinions, his belief or unbelief, than of the language which he learns from infancy? To punish a man for his errors, is it not to punish him for having been educated differently from you? If I am an unbeliever, is it possible for me to banish from my mind the reasons that have shaken my faith? If your God gives men leave to be damned, what have you to meddle with? Are you more prudent and wise than this God whose rights you would avenge? 156 every religion is intolerant. There is no devotee who does not, according to his temperament, hate, despise, or pity the adherents of a sect different from his own. The established religion, which is never any other than that of the sovereign and the armies, always makes its superiority felt in a very cruel and injurious manner by the weaker sects. As yet there is no true toleration upon earth. Men everywhere adore a jealous God, of whom each nation believes itself the friend, to the exclusion of all others. Every sect boasts of adoring alone the true God, the universal God, the sovereign of all nature. But when we come to examine this monarch of the world, we find that every society, sect, party, or religious cabal, makes of this powerful God only a pitiful sovereign whose care and goodness extend only to a small number of his subjects who pretend that they alone have the happiness to enjoy his favors and that he is not at all concerned about the others. The founders of religions, and the priests who support them, evidently propose to separate the nations whom they taught from the other nations they wished to separate their own flock by distinguishing marks. They gave their followers gods who were hostile to the other gods. They taught them modes of worship, dogmas, and ceremonies apart. 
and above all they persuaded them that the religion of others was impious and abominable. By this unworthy artifice the ambitious knaves established their usurpation over the minds of their followers, rendered them unsociable, and made them regard with an evil eye all persons who had not the same mode of worship and the same ideas as they had. Thus it is that religion has shut up the heart and forever banished from it the affection that man ought to have for his fellow-creature. Sociability, indulgence, humanity, those first virtues of all morality, are totally incompatible with religious prejudices. 157. THE EVILS OF A STATE RELIGION Every national religion is calculated to make man vain, unsociable, and wicked. The first step towards humanity is to permit everyone peaceably to embrace the mode of worship and opinions which he judges to be right. But this conduct cannot be pleasing to the ministers of religion, who wish to have the right of tyrannizing over men even in their thoughts. Blind and bigoted princes! You hate and persecute heretics, and order them to execution, because you are told that these wretches displease God. But do you not say that your God is full of goodness? How, then, can you expect to please him by acts of barbarity, which he must necessarily disapprove? Besides, who has informed you that their opinions displease your God? Your priests? But who assures you that your priests are not themselves deceived or wish to deceive you? The same priests? Princes, it is then upon the hazardous word of your priests that you commit the most atrocious crimes under the idea of pleasing the divinity. 158. Religion legitimates and authorizes crime. Pascal says that man never does evil so fully and cheerfully as when he acts from a false principle of conscience. Nothing is more dangerous than a religion which lets loose the ferocity of the multitude and justifies their blackest crimes. They will set no bounds to their wickedness when they think it authorized by their God whose interests, they are told, can make every action legitimate. Is religion in danger? The most civilized people immediately becomes true savages and think nothing forbidden. The more cruel they are, the more agreeable they suppose they are to their God, whose cause they imagine cannot be supported with too much warmth. All religions have authorized innumerable crimes. The Jews, intoxicated with the promises of their God, arrogated the rights of exterminating whole nations. Relying on the oracles of their God, the Romans conquered and ravaged the world. The Arabians, encouraged by their divine prophet, carried fire and sword among the Christians and the idolaters. The Christians, under pretext of extending their holy religion, have often deluged both hemispheres in blood. In all events favorable to their own interest, which they always call the cause of God, priests show us the finger of God. 
According to these principles, the devout have the happiness to see the finger of God in revolts, revolutions, massacres, regicides, crimes, prostitutions, horrors, and if these things contribute ever so little to the triumph of religion, we are told that God uses all sorts of means to attain his ends. Is anything more capable of effacing every idea of morality from the minds of men than to inform them that their God, so powerful and perfect, is often forced to make use of criminal actions in order to accomplish his designs? 159. The Argument That Evils Attributed to Religion Are False of Men no sooner do we complain of the extravagancies and evils which religion has so often caused upon the earth than we are reminded that these excesses are not owing to religion, but that they are the sad effects of the passions of men. But I would ask, what has let loose these passions? It is evidently religion. It is zeal that renders men inhuman and serves to conceal the greatest atrocities. Do not these disorders then prove that religion, far from restraining the passions of men, only covers them with a veil which sanctifies them, and that nothing would be more useful than to tear away this sacred veil of which men often make such a terrible use? What horrors would be banished from society if the wicked were deprived of so plausible a pretext for disturbing it? Instead of being angels of peace among men, priests have been demons of discord. They have pretended to receive from heaven the right of being quarrelsome, turbulent, and rebellious. Do not the ministers of the Lord think themselves aggrieved and pretend that the divine majesty is offended whenever sovereigns have the temerity to prevent them from doing evil? Priests are like the spiteful woman who cried, fire, murder, assassination, while her husband held her hands to prevent her from striking him. 160. Religion is incompatible with morality. Notwithstanding the bloody tragedies which religion often acts, it is insisted that without religion there can be no morality. If we judge theological opinions by their effects, we may confidently assert that all morality is perfectly incompatible with men's religious opinions. "'Imitate God!' exclaimed the pious. "'But what would be our morality should we imitate this God? And what God ought we to imitate? The God of the deist? But even this God cannot serve us as a very constant model of goodness.' If he is the author of all things, he is the author both of good and evil. If he is the author of order, he is also the author of disorder, which could not take place without his permission. If he produces, he destroys. If he gives life, he takes it away. If he grants abundance, riches, prosperity, and peace, he permits or sends scarcity, poverty, calamities, and wars. How, then, can we receive as a model of permanent beneficence the god of deism or natural religion 
whose favorable dispositions are every instant contradicted by all the effects we behold. Morality must have a basis less tottering than the example of a god whose conduct varies and who cannot be called good unless we obstinately shut our eyes against the evil which he causes or permits in this world. Shall we imitate the beneficent mighty Jupiter of heathen antiquity? To imitate such a god is to admit as a model a rebellious son who ravishes the throne from his father. It is to imitate a debauchee, an adulterer, one guilty of incest and of base passions, at whose conduct every reasonable mortal would blush. What would have been the condition of men under paganism had they imagined, like Plato, that virtue consisted in imitating the gods? Must we imitate the god of the Jews? Shall we find in Jehovah a model for our conduct? This is a truly savage god, made for a stupid, cruel, and immoral people. He is always furious, breathes nothing but vengeance, commands carnage, theft, and unsociability. The conduct of this god cannot serve as a model to that of an honest man, and can be imitated only by a chief of robbers. Shall we then imitate the Jesus of the Christians? Does this God, who died to appease the implacable fury of his father, furnish us an example which men ought to follow? Alas, we shall see in him only a God, or rather a fanatic, a misanthrope, who himself plunged in wretchedness and preaching to wretches, will advise them to be poor, to combat with and stifle nature, to hate pleasure, seek grief, and detest themselves. He will tell them to leave father, mother, relations, friends, etc., to follow him. Fine morality, you say. It is undoubtedly admirable. It must be divine, for it is impracticable to men. But is not such sublime morality calculated to render virtue odious? According to the so much boasted morality of the man-god of the Christians, a disciple of his in this world must be like Tantalus, tormented with a burning thirst, which he is not allowed to quench. Does not such morality give us a wonderful idea of the author of nature? If, as we are assured, he has created all things for his creatures, by what strange whim does he forbid them the use of the goods he has created for them? Is pleasure, then, which man continually desires, only a snare which God has maliciously laid to surprise his weakness? End of section 15. Recording by Roger Moline.